All right, I forgot to recruit a Bible reader, but tonight's chapter is short, so I'll just read the whole thing. We're in Joshua chapter 16, and in verse 1 it says, And the lot of the children of Joseph fell from Jordan by Jericho, under the water of Jericho, on the east to the wilderness that goeth up from Jericho throughout Mount Bethel, and goeth out from Bethel to Luz, and passeth along unto the borders of Archi to Ataroth, and goeth down westward to the coast of Jephletai, unto the coast of Beth Horon, the Nether, and to Gezer, and the goings out thereof are at the sea. So the children of Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim took their inheritance. And the border of the children of Ephraim, according to their families, was thus, even the border of the inheritance on the east side was Atroth Adar, unto Beth Horon, the upper, and the border went out toward the sea to Mikmatha on the north side, and the border went out eastward, unto Tanath Shiloh and passed by it on the east to Genoha. And it went down from Genoha to Adaroth to Nerath and came to Jericho and went out at Jordan. The border went out from Tapua westward unto the river Cana and the goings out thereof were at the sea. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Ephraim by their families. And the separate cities for the children of Ephraim were among the inheritance of the children of Manasseh all the cities with their villages, and they drave not out the Canaanites that dwelt in Gezer. But the Canaanites dwell among the Ephraimites unto this day and serve under tribute. And as we uh, go through this, and as we've been studying this book, I'm just reminded of how everything that's in the Bible is there for a reason. And a lot of times when we're reading things that just kind of seem like, uh, you know, unnecessary details, they, we do find out they do play a part somewhere else. And you just have to study. And God has these things in here for a reason. And the one thing that, you know, and we all know this, but the more you study the Bible, you're going to learn, is that the Lord takes His Word very serious. We see that God does not like when people mess with His Word, when they add to it, when they subtract from it. He doesn't like when they say the Lord said something, when the Lord didn't say something. God doesn't want us changing the word of God. And then when you go and you start looking at some of these prophecies that don't seem real important and ones that we often will look at it and, I mean, and think, you know, this doesn't seem that significant. It's not like a rapture one, like we're all looking for. But then we find out as you study the Bible, sure enough, this is recorded in here showing how God fulfilled this prophecy. Because while it might not matter a lot to us, because it doesn't necessarily pertain to our lives, you know what? It matters a lot to God, and that can give us comfort across the board with everything God promised in the Bible. It just gives us, if God cares that much about the little things, He's definitely going to care about those big things. And so that's just a little something extra there. But in this chapter, we're continuing to see how the land was divided up for the children of Israel. They are, you know, basically giving out the spoils because they've conquered all these kings. And in this chapter, last week, we talk, it talked about the inheritance of Judah. And now we are talking about the inheritance of Ephraim and Manasseh, who are both of the tribe of Joseph. Joseph's two children. And as you remember, Joseph got a double portion from his father. Now, here's something I don't know for sure that I've been scratching my head about as I look at these things. And as I look at the prophecies from Jacob, and it's very clear that what Jacob said in his prophecy came to pass. But what I'm not sure of, did Israel do things the way they did 
because of the words of Jacob? Or, you know, in their minds, did they just do it and it happened to be what Jacob prophesied? That's what I'm not sure. Were they, were they just being completely obedient to what their, you know, ancestors said over 400 years ago? You know, or did Jacob just prophesy and then, you know, through God's providence, they just accidentally did it? That's what I'm not sure on a lot of this stuff because we don't see anything about Joseph really getting a double portion except for, you know, what Jacob said. So were they being obedient to him? Because when we look at the next chapter and we see why Manasseh got such a big portion, we all, all we see that prophecy of Jacob's being fulfilled. I just don't, but it doesn't look like they were doing it in obedience. But it'd be impressive if they were doing it in obedience to what their ancestors said. But I think it was just God knew what was going to happen. But either way, it's amazing, you know, that God saw that coming and revealed it to Jacob and he was able to prophesy it. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. We'll talk about some of this as we go. But the significance of these two tribes that come from Joseph is very interesting. And it's something that it's rarely talked about in churches today. And I think the main reason is because it is a crystal clear picture of replacement theology. Now, I'm going to show you a prophecy here that, and again, showing you how important the words of God are. Because we're going to see a prophecy in Genesis from Jacob that I don't believe we see the fulfillment of until the book of Revelation. And it's we and we need to ask ourselves, if we are not, if replacement theology is a lie, when does this prophecy get fulfilled? Now, if you believe like we do on end times, it's not hard for us to figure out. But if you, uh, if you don't, I don't know what people are going to do with this passage. And so we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. So uh, a while back, I did speak on this subject of Ephraim and Manasseh when I was going through Genesis 48. So if you want to refer back to that one, I'm going to repeat some things I talked about in Genesis 48. But there's a few new things I've learned since then too, because this is, this is an interesting study that's just, it, not a lot has been preached on this thing because, you know, not too many people are right in the IFB world when it comes to, when it comes to Israel. So, uh, let me point out a few things about this chapter first, though. So, does anybody have maps in their Bible? Anybody? So, if you can turn in your Bible to the maps, all right? Now, uh, unfortunately, my Bible has maps, but it does not have the kind we need. Brother Jerry, he, I know his, uh, we were talking about Megiddo last week and uh, whose area that was in, because I didn't think it was in Judah's area based on my memory of being there. And it turned out it was right. It is actually in the uh, land that Manasseh possesses. That's mentioned here in this chapter. But uh, some of those maps, you'll notice, it'll show Israel, but then it'll have it divided up by the different tribes and whose land it belonged to. How many people have that in their Bible where it shows the different tribes? All right, some people have got that in there. Mine, it's not in there. But if you look at that, uh, notice how Manasseh has the largest portion of land. You know, as far as square miles, they have the biggest chunk of land. And then after that, it would be Judah. But uh, they definitely had the biggest plot of land. And in the next chapter, I'm not going to, um, we'll uh, go ahead and look at chapter 17. We're going to see why they got such a big portion. Now, I think part of it, too, was because of Jacob's blessing on Joseph. He's going to get a double portion. He got two, and he got two inheritances through Manasseh. Andy for him, but he also got a big chunk too. And it says in verse 14 
Um, and the children of Joseph spake unto Joshua, saying, Why hast thou given me but one lot and one portion to inherit, seeing I am a great people, for as much as the Lord hath blessed me hitherto? And so Joshua answered them, If thou be a great people, then get thee up to the wood country and cut down for thyself there in the land uh, of the Perizzites and of the giants, if Mount Ephraim be too narrow for thee. And the children of Joseph said, The hill is not enough for us, and all the Canaanites that dwell in the land of the valley have chariots of iron, both they who are of Bethshean and her towns, and they who are the valley of Jezreel. And Joshua spake unto the house of Joseph, even to Ephraim and to Manasseh, saying, Thou art a great people, and hast great power. Thou shalt not have one lot only, but the mountain shall be thine, for it is a wood, and thou shalt cut it down, and the outgoings of it shall be thine, for thou shalt drive out the Canaanites, though they have iron chariots, and though they be strong. So Manasseh was very blessed, and there was just a lot of them. They, they were a very large tribe because they did. They had a special blessing on them because of their father, Joseph. And so not only does Manasseh have the biggest chunk of land, but then if you're looking in those maps, include Ephraim in there and just understand all of that's Joseph. So you can see how Joseph did get that double portion. Uh, he was blessed greatly because Jacob, his father, favored him uh, greatly. So... Uh, notice also in chapter 16 at the very end how it mentions that they were not able to drive all the Canaanites from Gezer. It mentions that. Now, what happened to them? Well, the Bible actually tells us what ends up happening. And it's interesting. As I've been going through the book of Joshua, whenever you see something unfinished with a group of people, that usually means a story is coming later in the Bible about them. And so let's go ahead and see what ended up happening because under this day, meaning when the book of Joshua was mentioned, you know, they, uh, the Canaanites, they still dwelt among them, but they kept them under tribute. So uh, in 1 Kings chapter 9, turn over there and we'll see what happened to these people. 1 Kings chapter 9 and verse 15, and it says, And this is the reason of the levy which King Solomon raised for to build the house of the Lord and his own house and Milo in the wall of Jerusalem and Hazor and Megiddo and Gezer. And that's why I was confused too last week. And I was thinking maybe, maybe Judah did belong or Megiddo did belong to Judah because Solomon used it. And I remember going there and seeing Solomon's stables. You can go still see that place to this day. But, you know, he was king of Israel. So he did, you know, use land that was outside of his tribe. But it mentions in this passage how he used it. But let's keep reading. It says, so it mentions Megiddo and Gezer. For Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and taken Gezer and burned it with fire and slain the Canaanites that dwell in the city and given it for a present unto his daughter, Solomon's wife. And Solomon built Gezer and Beth Horon the Nether and Baalath and Tadmor in the wilderness in the land and all the cities of store that Solomon had and cities for his chariots and cities for his horsemen and that which Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem and in Lebanon and all the land of his dominion, and all the people that were left of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, which were not of the children of Israel, their, their children that were left after them in the land, whom the children of Israel also were not able to utterly destroy, upon those did Solomon levy a tribute of bond service unto this day. So we see what ended up happening to this group. Uh, the king of Egypt destroyed them as a wedding gift for his daughter. You know, it's like, hey, I'm going to do something for my daughter. And that's one of the reasons 
you know, these kings would have all these wives and things. It was good to make these alliances. And it worked out good for Solomon, politically speaking, because this king, as a gift for his daughter, went and took, care, took out some of their enemies. And now Solomon's got all this land he's able to use for his horses. And if you go there too, it makes sense why uh, he did it in this area because there is a big, beautiful, large plain that's out there, which is where everybody says the Battle of Armageddon is going to take place. And it's a fantastic place for you know hundreds and thousands of horses to graze and live. And uh, they've still got ruins from those stables there to this day. And so kind of an interesting thing where the Bible talks about it, but that land, uh, eventually uh, they didn't get it. Joseph and Manasseh, they weren't able to drive them out during that time, but the king of Egypt eventually did it later. And so uh, just kind of an interesting side note. That's why the Bible mentions these things. We got a story later about it. But now uh, what I want to do, go back to Genesis 48. All right, go back to Genesis 48 because what we're seeing again in Joshua chapter 16 we're seeing land being divided up, and they are. Joseph, uh, the tribe of Joseph, Ephraim, Manasseh, they are receiving a very large inheritance, a very large portion of land because they were a very great people, especially Manasseh, specifically Manasseh. They were the largest tribe. They got the biggest chunk of land. They had the most people. Keep this in mind. Now, Genesis forty-eight seventeen says, And when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand upon the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he held up his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Remember how Joseph brought his two sons. He brought uh, Manasseh in his left hand, the older, and Ephraim in his right hand. So when they came to his father, his father's right hand would be on Manasseh, and his left hand would be on Ephraim. And then the elder one would get the better blessing. You know, and that was, that was how they did it. But Jacob switched hands. Why? Because he wanted to give the greater blessing to Ephraim. Now, the Bible is not going to record something like this just because it happened. It, it, this is there for a reason. Stuff like that is there for a reason in the Bible, and we should pay attention to it. And then we should ask ourselves, why did he do this? What's the, what's the significance here? I think God's trying to show us something. I think God's trying to tell us something here. And so Joseph didn't like it. And Joseph said to his father, not so my father, for this is the firstborn. Talk about Manasseh. Put thy right hand upon his head. And his father refused and said, I know it, my son. I know it. He also shall become a people and he also shall be great. And Manasseh did become great, didn't he? He's great right here in Joshua. But truly his younger brother shall be greater than he and his seed shall become a multitude of nations. And he blessed them that day saying in thee shall all Israel bless saying, God make thee as Ephraim and Manasseh. And he set Ephraim before Manasseh. Okay, now this is, this is a major prophecy. This is one that you all should have ready to go because you're going to blow the mind of the, you know, the Zionists. When you bring this up, they're not going to know what to do with it because there's no doubt there's, this is not opinion that this is very significant. What's going on here. There's no doubt about the fact that this is prophetic. What's going on. We all like to talk about what Jacob said about Judah and his prophecy. We know that's a prophecy about the Messiah. Sure enough, Jesus came from the tribe of Judah, but what about this prophecy? 
Why is this so important? When, and here's what we need to ask ourselves. And this is the title of the message. When did Ephraim become greater than Manasseh? When did that happen? When did they become a greater people than Manasseh? So let's look at what Jacob said in this blessing specifically. All right. So first, notice how he said in verse 17, and I, I covered some of this in my Genesis 48 message, when Joseph's... Uh, or um, verse 19, and he said, um, I know it, he shall also become a people, or verse 20, I'm sorry. And he blessed them that day saying, in thee shall Israel bless, saying, God make thee as Ephraim and Manasseh. And he set Ephraim before Manasseh. So what he's doing right here, he is basically the same blessing that Abraham got the same blessing that God put on Isaac, that he put on Jacob. And when we were going through Genesis 48, we showed the same blessing that God put on all of those men. Jacob put it on Ephraim, not Manasseh, not Judah, not, not Joseph. He put it on Ephraim, not Manasseh. The same thing, the, some of the same wording that was said to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jacob says it to Ephraim. And so something very prophetic is going on. So what ended up happening to Ephraim? Because at some point, shouldn't Ephraim become greater than Manasseh? Shouldn't he become a multitude of nations at some point? Well, in Psalm seventy-eight sixty-seven, we see it says here, moreover, he refused the tabernacle of Joseph and chose not the tribe of Ephraim, but chose the tribe of Judah the Mount Zion, which he loved. So why did Ephraim end up getting rejected? Well, Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 5 says, Because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have taken evil counsel against thee, saying, Let us go up against Judah and vex it, and let us make a breach therein for us, and set a king in the midst of it, even the son of uh, Tabiel. Thus saith the Lord God, It shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is risen. And within three score and five years shall Ephraim be broken, that it be not a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. If ye will not believe, surely ye shall not be established. So here it's saying Ephraim is going to be broken, and they're not going to become a people. And what we have to understand about Ephraim, we talked about this, they became like the tribe of Judah, you know, in the southern kingdom. When the kingdom split, Judah became the capital or Jerusalem in the land of Judah that they inherited. That we saw last week, they ended up becoming the capital of that southern kingdom. And so often when the Bible would refer to Judah, it was actually referring to Judah, the Levites and Benjamin that all were a part of that southern kingdom. But then often when it would refer to the northern kingdom, eventually its headquarters became Ephraim. That kind of became its capital city. And so often the northern kingdom is referred to simply as Ephraim. And here in these prophecies we're seeing, you know, that northern kingdom got rejected. The northern kingdom got in trouble and specifically for going after Judah, for going after Israel, that because they went after the ones that God had actually chosen, God rejected them because of that. Can it, anybody start to see where this might play in somewhere? All right. You know, but anyway, so, you know, the northern kingdom was eventually taken over by the Assyrians while Judah was spared that judgment at that time. But years later, 
Judah finally got what was coming to them because of all their problems. And uh, it came at the hand of the Babylonians. And so Ephraim, it was never established again as the capital. And when God's people were eventually restored to the land, they went back to really just mainly being one kingdom during that time. But they were always under some kind of captivity, whether it be the, you know, the Medes and the Persians, then later the Greeks, and then during the time of Christ, the Romans. And they only had like a puppet king there who was not from Judah, who was not from the line of David, Herod. It's just somebody that uh, the Romans installed to just kind of be a yes-man for them. But that northern kingdom, over those years, while that, all that captivity is going on, everything with the Babylonians, Medes and Persians, all that, during that time, the northern kingdom became very mixed with the Gentiles. Very mixed during that time. And that's what, who, and then by the time we make that 400 year jump from Malachi to uh, the New Testament, all of a sudden now, the northern kingdom is so mixed. And you know what they called a lot of those people in those areas? Samaritans. They, they were known as Samaritans. They didn't really call, call them, even they, they called them Samaritans. And, um, and part of that too was because Samaria was the capital city of the northern kingdom that was in the land of Ephraim. And I know this is a lot of geographical stuff, all right? I, and I, I'm hoping y'all are retaining some of this. But the, you know, these things are important and they help us understand a lot of things in the Bible. But when you read about the Ephraims later in the Old Testament, you need to understand that the Ephraim, the people of Ephraim, they, they eventually became the Samaritans that we see in the New Testament. And so the Jews hated and they rejected the Samaritans. And in reality... They were Gentiles, okay? But they were actually, you know, kind of hated almost more because of the fact they were part Jew, too. And the, Jew, and the Jews hated them because of that. And so while the Jews rejected the Samaritans, what do we see Jesus do? He accepted Samaritans, didn't he? And boy, the Jews didn't like that at all, did they? They, they had a big problem with that. And so, and this is, folks, we got to understand this. You know, hear this, hear this well. I'm not going to take time to go over all this. I've preached on this before too, but the more I study, the more I know I'm right about this and the more obvious that it is. But the story of the prodigal son is, uh, is about the, you know, Ephraim. It's about the Samaritans. It's about the Gentiles. That prodigal son is the Samaritans. It's the Gentiles. He's the one who went and... He, he lost his inheritance. He went and wasted his inheritance. He threw it away. The, 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 all those Samaritans, all those people that mixed in with the Gentiles, they, were, they messed up. They threw everything away. They rejected God. They wasted it. But you know what? It was, it was Gentiles that wanted to come back, wasn't it? And we see that when the uh, younger brother returned, the older brother didn't want to share with that younger brother, did he? He didn't like how he had ran off and wasted. He felt that he was somebody who had remained faithful and, and loyal to his father. And he and, and, the, remember, and remember, you know, the story just ends right there. There's no re resolution. You know why? Because that parable ended where they were currently at at that time. And you know what we see that ended up happening? The... Jews rejected the Gentiles. They hated the idea of the Gentiles being included. Even many who were kind of on the fence after the resurrection, you know, during Pentecost and during all that time, 
They didn't like all these Gentiles becoming a part of the church. They, did, they didn't want that. They were, you know where they were? They were that older brother. Rejecting them. But the truth is, God loved them. God loved those Samaritans. God loved those Gentiles. God loved those people that weren't, that weren't Jews. He, lo- he loved those people. And so we've got a, the, the parable of the prodigal son is no doubt about it. That's talk, that, that prodigal son is Ephraim. That's who he is. He's a mess. He's a wreck. That northern kingdom, when they came back, they didn't have a pure bloodline anymore. They were a mess. They were all mixed in. With, they basically were Gentiles. Just like that prodigal son, he wasted everything and spent his money on harlots and things. And because of that, that younger brother or that older brother didn't want him. But the father still loved him. And you know what? When the Gentiles were coming to Christ, as big of a mess that they were, he still loved them. He still wanted them. He still accepted them. And you know what? And he wanted the father. Hey, I still love you, son. I'm still for you. Everything you have is mine. I'm not sharing it. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna have that. And we know what ended up happening. You know, if we may finish the parable, the older brother walked away from his inheritance and rejected. He rejected his inheritance, and then the younger brother got it. That's what happened. If we want to finish that story, when when we understand what it's talking about, we know the end of the story. But Jesus didn't finish the story because it it, had, it hadn't been finished yet. It hadn't happened yet. And so the Gentiles coming to Christ is a picture of Ephraim, the prodigal son coming home. When Ephraim came back, the father gave him the fatted calf. He, and the, it was God's desire to bless both, but the elder brother hated that younger brother. Kind of like Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his own brother. Boy, it's like the Bible saw all this coming. I mean, folks... Stuff like this is proof that this is not a book written by men. Uh, you, you, no man can make something like this up. We're not capable of that. All we can do is, and these things clearly were not written all together so we can make it all fit. You know, these things were written over, you know, a massive period of time by many different people, but yet it's crystal clear there's one author. Absolutely no doubt about it at all. So, um, you know, the Jews, they did this very thing when they were shutting people out of the kingdom. That's one of the things Jesus got onto them for during his triumphal entry. They'd shut people out of the kingdom. They weren't supposed to do that. The book of Isaiah told them what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to start receiving the eunuchs. They were supposed to start receiving these other people. But they didn't. They shut, they shut them out. Look at the way, just look at the way they treated the Samaritans. The ones who were actually closer to them than other Gentiles, but yet they despise them greatly. And so, not only after the time of Christ, you know, they, or, you know, so not only all these things, we see they continued after the time of Christ to persecute the church, just like Ishmael persecuted Isaac. Well, I don't think you ought to draw that comparison. Well, Paul did. I stole that from Galatians chapter 4. He said, just like Ishmael, he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was of promise, even so it is today. You know why? Because the children of the flesh, the Jews, were persecuting the children of promise, the church. And, that, and so that's why we are identified with Isaac. So, 
Having said all this, the question again is, when did Ephraim outdo Manasseh? When did, when did that take place? Because you know what? If you read through the Old Testament, it didn't happen. We never see them becoming a greater people. We see them being rejected. Now, when we, when we look at those passages where we see God is rejecting Ephraim, how is then what happens to that prophecy in Genesis chapter 48 by Jacob? Did, did that go out the window? Or is it still going to be fulfilled like all the other ones? I believe it's still going to be fulfilled. I believe this one is not done. I believe this, I believe this has not uh, fully come to fruition yet. And when we understand this, uh, this, this can really help us out a lot. So here's when I think we see the full manifestation of this prophecy from Genesis 48 by Jacob about Ephraim becoming greater than Manasseh. I believe when this thing comes to full fruition is in Revelation chapter 7. I turn over to Revelation chapter 7. And this is where, in the beginning of chapter 7, is where we see the 144,000 that are mentioned. And man, I don't, you know, I don't want to go too far with some of this stuff, but I don't know. I, I, I've got a theory now on the 144,000 that's, I don't know, possible, but I don't want to go on record as saying it. I'll have to tell you after church because just because I don't know. I don't want to preach heresy or anything like that, but. It, it, it might be a little bit of speculation, but let me, let me show you something. So in Revelation 7, 6, of the tribe of Asher were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Nephilim were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Manassas were sealed 12,000. So notice Manasseh is included in the tribes. And if you go through all of them, you'll notice two tribe names are not mentioned. Dan, which I speculated on why from Genesis 48. I'm not going to go into that again. And Ephraim. Ephraim's not mentioned in there. But we see, well, then how do we get 12? It's because we have Joseph and Manasseh that's mentioned. But no Ephraim. Ephraim is not mentioned anywhere in there. What's going on with Ephraim? What happened? Well, I actually think we do see Ephraim. Because remember what Jacob said? He's going to become a multitude of nations. You know a word that's used interchangeably sometimes in the Bible is the word nations? and Gentiles, or sometimes heathen and Gentiles. Those words are kind of used simultaneously uh, in the New Testament because uh, you know Gentiles was just a reference to all the other nations and all the other people. And nations was also often referred to all the other nations or sometimes just heathen because you know the gospel and God wasn't in all those other nations. And so those things would all kind of be used together and it was Jacob that prophesied that Ephraim would become a multitude of nations. Now, in Revelation 7, we see exactly how many there are of the 12 tribes of Israel. We see 144,000 that are of Israel. But when we get to verse 9 of Revelation 7, it says, After this I beheld and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. Ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce you to Ephraim. That's who that is right there. That's Ephraim. That's what happened to the tribe of Ephraim. Well, why isn't it called Ephraim anymore? Because it's, it's just this multitude of nations. 
you know, we're not, we're not from that individual anymore, but yet that, and, and again, too, Ephraim does, I do believe represents the Gentiles. And let me ask, where is the vast majority of people in heaven going to be from? Gentiles all over, all over the nations. But you know, when it comes to Israel, you know what the Bible says about them? God says there's a remnant. You know, they, they have a remnant. You know, what a, you got those 144,000 that are right there. Now, here's the thing. Is, are the 144,000 a literal group of people? That officially is my position. I, I tend to think that that's the case. But what if it's a representation of that remnant? You know, what if this is a representation of the people of Israel who originally received the promises? The promises were originally given to Israel. They were originally given to that nation. And so what if these 144,000 represent all those who were a part of physical Israel? I'm not talking about the one since the time of Christ. I'm talking about before the cross. All the people that were of Israel, and I'm sure there was more than 144,000 of them, and I don't believe it was only men, you know, and all the, the requirements that it has in there too. But here's the other thing about that too. It mentions how they're all virgins. You know, they're all, without, you know, they, without guile, the follow the lamb with us, wherever he goeth, all these things. And, you know, some people take that literal. You know, the, the pre-trivers teach that these are individuals that could be alive on earth today which doesn't make any sense since no Jew knows what tribe that they're from. But all those things that he mentioned them being virgins without guile, all those things, isn't that what the type of thing that they would strive for back then while under the law, they would strive for this holiness and purity. And we see they were never able to find it under the law, but could it be that God is granting them that because of, you know, their faith, you know, because of their cleansing that they got through the blood of the lamb. So I do think it's possible that it's that symbolic as a, the 144,000 are a reference to the saints that were from Israel. Those who were actually of faith. It could be a literal group of people too. I'm not going to, you know, get dogmatic and fight with people on either. But I do think it's a I do think it's a possibility because turn over and turn over in Romans chapter eleven, in Romans chapter eleven, because Israel has their remnant just like God promised, which is I think what we're seeing, you know, here in, um, you know, here in Revelation chapter seven, we are seeing a multitude that nobody can number, but we've got a, a multitude, but one that can be numbered with Israel. Why? Because they're the remnant. That's that remnant that God has from Israel. But the vast majority are people from all over the world, from every tongue and nation. And in Romans 11, 25, it says, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness is part, in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion to deliver. It shall turn ungodliness away from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the father's sake. 
for the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. So again, what I think Paul might be referring to here is there are things that God promised to Israel directly to those people promises that were without repentance, ones that he gave them and that he is going to give them for the fathers, plural Abraham, Isaac and Jacob's sake for their sake. I'm going to give them a remnant. And he, and he mentioned in that day, in that day, he said there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Could the 144,000 be a representation of that remnant? You say, well, you know, what if they weren't virgins? Well, this is my covenant when I shall take away their sins. They messed that up, but he took that away from them. You know, do we have to help me find 144,000 that fit those specific categories? You know, from each tribe. No, I think this is just, I think it could be, and I'm speculating, I think it could be just a representation of the remnant of Israel that came from there, from the Old Testament. But it, but the that rest of that multitude, that's Ephraim. That's the Gentiles. That is that multitude of nations that Jacob prophesied was going to come. And so you say, well, that's a pretty good theory, you know. Uh, you know, I don't know if I agree 100% for, uh, with that or not. But, you know, either way you look at it, my question is then, when did Ephraim outdo Manasseh? I can't find any other time in their history. The, the only thing, I, other thing I could possibly think of that maybe could have been a fulfillment is just the fact that Ephraim and Samaria became the leader of the northern kingdom. But the thing is, the king's didn't stay in that line. The kings and the northern kingdom were constantly switching tribes. So there doesn't seem to appear any time in their history where they outdid Manasseh in any way. And, and, and if I'm missing something, you can let me know. I believe that Ephraim is symbolic and a picture of the Gentiles. And it, was the, it has been the Gentiles that God has mainly used. It will be mostly Gentiles that are in heaven, but there will be that remnant that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and who, are, who is that remnant? Who are those people? It was everyone during that time that was of faith. Guys like Moses are part of that remnant. Now, whether he's in that 144,000, I don't know. And listen, you know what? This is a good you know, answer for pre-tribbers too because they all want to tell you the 24 elders are all Christians. Well, okay. If the 24 elders represent all of Christianity, you know, why can't the 144,000 represent you know, all of the remnant of Israel. You know, I, I don't know. But, uh, and, and now I do think, even if they are a picture of all of it, I still tend to think that there are going to be 144,000 that come to earth, you know, after the resurrection and, and do what they're supposed to do on earth. But I, I still think what we're seeing here in chapter 7 is a representation of that. So, you know, either way, and you can you can completely disagree with me on the 100, 144,000 tie-in. That's fine. But, uh, you know, the Ephraim representing the Gentiles, I think that's pretty clear. And I think Revelation 7 is where we see that prophecy fulfilled. And I just think that's amazing because it's like the first book of the Bible, we see a prophecy. And then we literally read through thousands of years of history and we never see it fulfilled, but it's like, and you know, it's an easy one we could just forget about, not pay attention to, but God's like, I'm not forgetting that one. 
You know, I know I did it way back then and most of you forgot about it, weren't paying attention to it, but I was paying attention to it. And in the end of the Bible, he shows us how that happens, how that's fulfilled, how it gets done. And so I just think that just to me, all of this, you know, uh, just shows the author of the Bible. And, you know, and these are things, these are deep things too. You know what? If I got up and I debated an atheist, I don't get to use this. You know why? It's too much to explain and there's too much stuff you already have to already know about the Bible. But the thing is, those of us who actually, you know, who study the Bible and have been in church and have been taught all these things, you know, we, our mind gets blown by these things. And so while, you know, these things are tough to articulate in just a few sentences, while we're having a Twitter fight with somebody and, you know, we can only use so many 140 characters or whatever it is, you can't use this during that. But at that atheist, you know, they, they can put their little, you know, you know, manifest God right now to prove he exists, you know, and they, you know, they try to do things like that. Oh, the Bible is just written by men. And then, you know, we, we've heard lessons like this. We've read, studied things like this. And we're just like, you have no idea what you're talking about. And I can't, I can't, you know, just fix, you know, debunk everything you told me in 140 characters, but good night. This makes it really hard to just, you know, not believe the Bible. It, this is an amazing book. And so, um, you know, it's, and this is why we, we're going to, we're going to study 10 verse chapters like Joshua chapter 16. It causes us to look at things that just show more evidence of some of these deeper things like this and shows what a great book we have. So I hope that was a help and a blessing. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for, uh, just another example of, uh, your providence. Uh, Lord, this is, to me, this is just another thing, just showing your signature, uh, on this book that we have the true Word of God and the, the perfect Word of God in our hands. Lord, things this detailed um, are not going to survive the years. Little changes could would mess everything up on there. But Lord, there it is, proof of your preservation of your Word. And I'm just so thankful that uh, we can look at this book and know what we're reading directly came from you. Uh, it's what motivates me to keep studying and to just trust every word that's in it. And I pray if this message did anything, Lord, while not everybody might remember all the geography and every little thing that we talked about tonight, Lord, I, I pray that this just uh, increased people's faith in this Bible. And I pray the next time that they open it up and they look in it, that just a little bit more than they did before, they will trust what it says. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, well, with that, let's all stand for our last song, page number 291. Come and dine. We'll do the first and last verse and be dismissed. Let's all stand together, page number